11. And we're going to look at the faith of Noah this evening. Hebrews chapter 11. Again, just looking at one verse here tonight. That is verse 7. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. I think uh, uh, the story of Noah and the great flood is probably the section of God's word that is most sneered at, jeered at, disbelieved, uh, viciously even attacked by unbelievers and infidels. There's other stories like Jonah and the great fish, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, and they also come into their fair share of assault, but nothing like Noah and his ark. And yet the writer of Hebrews, in recounting the exploits of faith by the faithful, sums up Noah in just 28 Greek words, which King James scholars translated into 42 English words, uh, the English language seems to always take a little bit more uh, <laughs> more words to say something, uh, but that's uh, typical of our English language. But obviously, God is not worried about that, and he's not worried about all those who make fun of Noah and uh, the ark and the flood, and uh, the writer doesn't offer any apologetic uh, for the account uh, whatsoever. He simply just takes it for granted. Uh, he sets it forth as fact. And for our purposes this evening, we'll do just the same thing. This is something that took place uh, on this earth uh, many, many years ago. Now, you might say uh, the writer was like the little boy uh, whom his mother caught scratching his Bible with a pen. And when she inquired what he was doing, uh, he brightly responded, I was reading about the man who came to Jesus and pleaded regarding his poor son, and he says there, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Mark 9, verse 22. And I don't think anyone, he said, should say if to Jesus. Uh, so I scratched that part out. Well, uh, there are no ifs in the story of Noah, uh, the great flood, unless we use the if, which means since, meaning that that's a fact since it happened. But it happened exactly as the word of God declares the waters covered the entire earth, not just a local area where Noah and his, uh, his uh, family and others lived, but it and covered the entire world. Now, before we get into the actual outline of the message, let me just note uh, two things about the time and about the man. First of all, the conditions of the day, the conditions of Noah's day. Actually, they were pretty bad. Unlike Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, that famous novel about London and Paris during the days of the French Revolution, it could not be called the best of times, uh, the age of wisdom, the epic of belief, the season of light, the spring of hope. Now, you'd have to know some literature if you want to recognize those phrases. And I'm sure all of you remember reading Charles Dickens. But uh, uh, it could only be described, Noah's day could only be described as the worst of times, the age of foolishness, the epic of incredulity, uh, the season of darkness, 
and the winter of despair. This was a bad time on this earth. During Christ's earthly ministry in his private Olivet discourse to his disciples, he used Noah's day to describe what the situation would be like when he comes again. So if you think the earth is getting bad, the world is getting bad today, it is, and that can mean only one thing. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. But Jesus warned his disciples, he said, but as the days of Noah were so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And the thought is not so much of the wickedness and the eating and the drinking as the issue of an individual survival. You know, getting married and giving daughters in marriage is a question of race survival. It's not so much that things, uh, those things are wicked, uh, but it is to show how godless and materialistic people had become then, and we see it even in our day, how godless and materialistic people have become even today. You know, Luke quotes our Lord as adding that time uh, was also like Lot's day. When they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded things, not evil in themselves. Those things are not evil, but which perhaps show the secularism of their thinking and their living. God was not in their thoughts. They were not interested or concerned about God and what he desired for them. It was a materialistic time when the universal philosophy could be summed up in that old saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Some, uh, someone changed that to eat, drink, and worry, for tomorrow we die. But further light is shown on the conditions of the day in Genesis 6 and verse 5 where it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was a time of loose, low morals, the worst in the history of the human race. Can you visualize a people whose every thought, every imagination pertained only to evil? Well, it's not not as hard to imagine in the day in which we live. And not just thinking about it, not just thinking about it, but doing it. The word of God is very specific here. Every heart thought was vile, was rotten, was corrupt. Remember that Solomon said of the man in Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our Lord added further light when he sharply rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 34 and 35. He said, oh, generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. The heart is the key to the life, both for good and for evil. And the people of Noah's day had corrupt, evil hearts. This kind of thinking went on 24 hours a day and seven days a week, continually, the Bible says, continually. 
Literally, the whole day is the way Moses describes it. The Hebrew word there uh, means all the days, all day, every day. What a cesspool existed. And Moses goes on to say in Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Peter described it as the world of the ungodly, 2 Peter 2, 5. Remember how Enoch himself pictured this crowd? Uh, we read in Jude and uh, verse 15, all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The earth was filled with violence, a matter that had started with Noah's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I hope I got all the greats in there. But you know who that was? That was Cain. And again, the Hebrew word means lawlessness. They were filled with violence. They were lawless. Most authorities are agreed that it primarily pictures violence. The wild rash of violence today, when it's no longer safe to walk in many of our city streets at night, or even in the day for that matter, And the senseless killings, the vicious rapes, the drive-by shootings at random, just for the fun of it. The mass killings of, of students by other students in our public schools and incest is a nightly occurrence in many homes. Ferocious wife beatings, inhumane child abuse, people being thrown against the walls and the floors, burned with cigarettes and lighters, arms and legs twisted until broken, punched with fists, genocide, through abortion, holocaust, that is, the exterminating of unwanted and political enemies, the seeking to legalize euthanasia, and violence as entertainment. Sadly, our day sounds like Noah's day. Into the midnight darkness of corruption and evil stepped a man whose personal light of holiness and faith blinded his peers Like the brilliance and the heat of the sun which melts wax and hardens the mud at the same time, such a witness always produces its beholders either conviction or conversion, or it results in hardened hearts and even more and more wicked ways. Certainly it had a latter effect in Noah's day. That was the condition of the day of Noah. There's also the character of the man. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 and 9, it sums it up. It says there, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. I think there are three characteristics that stand out here. First of all, Noah was a just man. The word just means righteous. In other words, he knew the Lord. He was saved. God had declared him righteous. Saved people are the only individuals God describes as just. He uses it in the same sense in the book of Job. Job 9 and verse 2. But how shall a man be just with God? Noah, although just a man 
with a completely different lifestyle was just in the same sense as backslidden Lot was just, according to Second Timothy or Second Peter two and verse seven. His justification was grace, all of grace. He had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Romans chapter 4, Paul tells how David described it. In Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, it says, Even as David also described the blessedness of man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Noah was a just man. But secondly, he was a was perfect in his generations. Now the word perfect there means blameless. Same word used repeatedly to describe the kind of animals God insisted upon for sacrifices to him. That is, animals without defects. There were no defects in Noah to hinder his relationship and fellowship with Almighty God. And since this blamelessness was in his generations, and the context deals with improper and evil marriage relationships, chapter 4 speaks of Noah's father in the first record of polygamy in the Bible. Perhaps this speaks of Noah's purity in his marriage. Noah and his sons practiced monogamy. They married saved women. Not yoking up unequally. But at any rate, he was just in his relationship to God. He was blameless, the Bible tells us, in his relationship with men. Even though all was iniquity and evil around him. You say, I can't help all the, the things that I do and I, I think and I, I, you know, it's all around me. I just can't help it. No, Noah could help it. He didn't say, well, you know, everyone else is doing it. He didn't set his standards according to the eyes of the world or the patterns of popularity or the measuring right and wrong by the yardstick of his peers. His spiritual senses were not dulled by the cesspools of iniquity all around him. No one could find fault with Noah. If Noah could live that way in his day, don't you think we could live that way in our day? Now, how did he attain and maintain his perfection or his blamelessness? Well, the answer is in the third characteristic that Moses mentions in Genesis. Noah walked with God. Like Enoch, he kept in step with the Almighty God. He never ran ahead, nor did he lag behind. Noah advanced, he progressed, and he went forward, and he walked in harmony and agreement with God. What a man. What an example for our generation, or any generation. Let me ask you, are you walking with God? We talked about this when we talked about the walk of faith with Enoch. Are you walking with God? Are you praying? Are you reading his precious word? I'm not asking if you have are having your devotions every day. I'm asking, are you devoted to God? If you're devoted to God, you'll be interested in what God has to say. Not only in your personal study of his word, but being faithful to the preaching and the teaching of God's word in this local church. 
Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? So you could come by and shake my hand at the end of the service and say, Oh, pastor, what a blessing you are to me. So you can build up my ego by coming to hear me preach? No. Because there's nothing special about me. But I'll tell you what, there's something special about this book. Why did God call evangelists and pastors to give out the word? Well, in Ephesians 4.12, it says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Listen, I'm afraid some of you are not walking with God. Some of you are not devoted to him. Some of you are not listening to him, but you expect him to listen to you. You see, the condition of the day was not much different than that of today. And the question is, where are the Christians who have the character that Noah had? Now that was all by way of introduction. So let's look a little closer here at our text in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. Notice faith's vision. In verse 7 it says, By faith Noah. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. First thing we see is by faith he was warned of God. Listen, faith believes. And thereby it accepts God's announcements of judgment. If God said it, that settles it. Faith never talks back. It never tries to explain away or dilute the pronouncements. Unbelief, which has trouble with the supernatural anyway, cannot swallow God's revelations about judgment, and therefore a humanistic explanation must be submitted. Even as I was preparing this message, I came across... One preacher's thought about one, what might have taken place. Of course, you, as you'll see, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek explanation made by this use of this preacher's imagination. According to him, there was so much alarm about the possibility that Noah's warning of judgment might be true. Authorities of the day conducted a convention to ease the mind of the people. And if you'll permit me to read it here, I'll, dis, uh, I'll give you the, his description. He says, he says, I can picture in, the, in mind that convention. All the roads lead to this gigantic ark. Bearded patriarchs, hundreds of years old, gather from all parts. And the first speaker is Dr. Daniel Dryasdust, the philosopher. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, God is perfect wisdom. Perfect wisdom makes no mistake. 
If God should destroy mankind, it would prove that God had made a mistake in creating what he has afterwards forced to destroy. But God is perfect wisdom, and perfect wisdom makes no mistake. Therefore, God shall not destroy mankind, and therefore there will be no flood. People applaud, and there's great uh, applause for Dr. Dryasdust. But then Professor Hezekiah Highbrow comes up, the eminent scientist, and he has his turn, and he says, We are gathered today to dispose once and for all of the unscientific absurdity of an approaching world destruction. Science has shown that for thousands of years no break has occurred in the reign of natural law, and there has been no violent arrest of the world's course that a uniformity of law unbroken for thousands of years will end in a sudden, miraculous, spectacular intervention is contrary to the law of evolution, and I declare the voice of science to be against a universal flood. Wow, loud cheers again come from all the people. So finally, Dr. Silas Sailtrimmer, the popular preacher, he rises to speak and he says, My beloved friends, God is a God of love. For 120 years, this uneducated religious zealot has slandered the character of God by saying he will bring a cruel judgment upon the world. And our modern theologians cannot reconcile such a judgment with the love of God. And I ask you to be broad-minded people. Take your stand with me upon the lofty ground of a larger hope. Let Noah adapt his preaching to the age in which he lives. He believes exactly as Adam believed in his a thousand years behind times. Let him preach the, on the love of God. I, for one, do not believe in frightening people into God's kingdom. Even if God did speak to Noah regarding a judgment by water, then I believe the water is not a literal water, but a figurative water. And I have behind me the consensus of the latest scholarship when I say there shall be no literal flood. Well, the convention adjourns. The people are lulled to sleep by a sickly sentimental theology which declares that no matter how much licentiousness and degeneracy and criminality and debauchery stain the souls of men, God is too loving to enforce his demand for common decency. Now, if that convention had actually taken place, it is highly unlikely and probable, but one thing is certain. Those who believed God's message were saved. And the unbelievers were destroyed in the judgment. You see, faith believes God. Faith accepts his word as truth doesn't rationalize it, doesn't explain it away. It just says, this is God's word, we're going to accept it as truth. The fact that Noah was warned of God indicates another great truth, that is, faith, walking with God, can hear God speak. Since he was not walking in the world, he was not making its racket in his ears or in his heart. It was, he was able to hear the still, small voice of God when he spoke. You know, there are Numerous instances of God's people being divinely instructed, which is the meaning of the Greek word used in our text here. In Matthew 2, the wise men from the east were divinely instructed not to return to Herod, but to go home another way. 
And then Joseph, the foster father of Jesus, was divinely instructed after Herod was dead to return to Israel. Cornelius, when he longed to be saved, said, or was divinely instructed to send uh, to Joppa for the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. Yes, God speaks. I wonder, are you living where you can hear God speak today? Jesus said in his discourse on the good shepherd, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How can you follow him if you do not hear him and know his voice? And if you do not know his voice, then what's the problem? Could be a number of things. Number one, you're not familiar with it. Number two, you're not paying attention to it. Or number three, you're not close enough to him to hear it. And since it's a still small voice, you could be too far away from him to understand the message. Now, God does not speak to us in an audible voice today. Noah didn't have a Bible like you and I have tonight. But we have the entire Bible today. We have God's full revelation to mankind given through his prophets of old. And there are warnings here. Are you listening to them? Are you reading them? Are you believing them? By faith, Noah was warned of God. Secondly, by faith of things not seen as yet. If we look at God's instruction in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 17, it says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in earth shall die. And then in chapter 7 and verse 4, he said, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will destroy, I was destroy from off the face of the earth. Now, there was no way Noah could reason this out. He had to take it by faith. If he accepted it at all. Why? Because, you know what? The word flood and the word rain were not even in his vocabulary. He'd never heard flood or rain before. There was no such thing. He had never experienced floods or rain. In the biblical description of the Garden of Eden, it says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth, or the, of the ground. There were no fleecy, happy little clouds. Uh, or fierce, dark thunderclouds rolling in to soak the earth and fill its reservoirs. Instead, the ground was watered by a mist coming from beneath rather than from above. And as far as we know, the method of life producing moisture had not changed at the time of Noah's warning. So truly a rain causing a destructive flood that would destroy both man and beast was not a thing that was a thing not seen as yet. That was something in the future uh, in Noah's day. 
And yet I could be be seen as was seen with the eye of faith. It could be seen uh, with the eye of faith because faith has a vision. In Noah's time, God said he would destroy the world by water. No one had ever seen anything like that. But Noah believed it. He believed that it would happen. In our day, in a passage immediately following the reminder of the flood, God says he's going to destroy this world by fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-12. through 12. No one has ever seen anything like that. Now, we've seen fires, but we haven't seen the world destroyed by fire. Now, do you believe that's going to happen? I do. Faith's vision. Secondly, we see faith's verdict. Again, in verse 7 here, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of the house. Here's the choice of faith. In the matter of the word of God, everyone has a choice of either believing or disbelieving what God has said. He compels no one to believe. He doesn't make you believe. That choice is yours. It rests fully, squarely upon you as an individual. He compels no one to believe. The choice is yours. Here is what Noah chose. He, with reverence, fear for the friend who warned him, did exactly as he commanded. Faith always chooses obedience. Faith choosing disobedience would be a contradiction of terms. It would be like speaking of dry water or white blackness or bitter sweetness. Faith choosing disobedience is a contradiction of terms. This is one reason why James in his epistle mentions work so strongly, causing uh, some to foolishly imagine that he was contradicting Paul. James 2, 17 and 18, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yet a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Then in verse 20, But wilt thou, o ma- that, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then down in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith always goes God's way down the highway of obedience. Now what was Noah's motivation behind his choice of faith? He was moved with fear. He was moved with fear. For one thing, it was the fear of the consequence of disobedience, of not obeying God. He knew he couldn't do wrong and get by with it. His 600 years of life had convinced him that the tree of sin bears bitter fruit. Fear, yes. But it was of the the ungodly reverence type of fear, not terror. This fear is the kind that is the beginning of knowledge, as we see in Proverbs 1 and verse 7. In other words, you might say that Noah acted because he loved God and was thereby motivated to do exactly what he said. This is the only true motivation for real service. Fear, even the terror kind, is a natural legitimate force in obeying God's warnings. Sometimes people say, are you trying to scare me into heaven? 
Yes, I would if I could. I think we could think of many people who got saved more because of the fear of hell than the enticement of heaven. Some people in their testimony say, you know, I got to thinking about that message on hell and I I couldn't sleep that night until I got up and got right with God and I asked God to save me. Jude spoke of having compassion on some, making a difference, and others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Noah was moved with fear. And then he chose to prepare an ark. God gave Noah some work to do, and he did it. Faith always does. Do you have faith tonight? Instead of sitting around bragging about it, Start looking for something that God wants you to perform by faith. It was Fanny Crosby who wrote, To the work, to the work, we are servants of God. Let us follow the path that our master hath trod. With the balm of his counsel, our strength to renew. Let us do with our might what our hands find to do. Toiling on, toiling on, toiling on, toiling on. Let us hope, let us watch and labor till the master comes. The Lord did not call you to just sit. He called you to serve. Now, why prepare an ark? Our text says he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. In other words, the work God gave him involved bringing about salvation to his own family. Is there any greater, nobler work than this? When Paul and Silas answered the prison guard's question, what must I do to be saved? It was the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Acts 16, 30 and 31. And the daddy who does not take his wife and his children to heaven with him is a spiritual failure. No matter how much success he apparently enjoys otherwise. How about your family? Is it well with thee? Is it well with your husband or your wife? Is it well with your children? Is it well with your other loved ones? Faith vision. Faith verdict. And finally, faith, faith's vindication. Faith vindication. Once again, look at verse 7 here. It said, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. God said there was going to be a worldwide flood. Noah believed him. That flood came and the faith of Noah was vindicated. It was justified. How? Well, first of all, he condemned the world. That's what the text tells us. This was a world to whom he had preached the message of judgment and repentance for more than a century. Preacher Noah was described by Peter in 2 Peter 2.5 and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. This world, instead of repenting, laughed him to scorn. But as they sadly learn through experience, it's the last laugh that counts. Noah's condemnation of the world is another reminder that the godly and the righteous daily walk in faith by 
the believer rising up to condemn the unbeliever. Jesus said the same would be true in the final judgment seat in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 and 42. He said, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. He condemned the world. Secondly, he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The word heir here means partaker of. Noah partook of the righteousness that's only available through faith. The idea here comes or does not relate to justifying faith, although Noah had that, but the righteousness that comes in conduct through a life of holiness. It's a type of righteousness that results from the obedience to God. I wonder tonight, are you an heir of that form of righteousness? This kind is not imputed but it's developed through a walk of faith with God. There is a righteousness that we're given when we're saved, but this is the righteousness that is developed through your walk of God, your sanctification. Noah, obviously, is a fulfillment of Hebrews 11 and verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That wonderful verse is set between the faith of Enoch and the faith of Noah. We spoke of it last week as applying to Enoch, but it applies to Noah just as well and any others in this tremendous chapter dealing with with men and women of faith. Noah, like Enoch, found God to be a rewarder, a vindicator of all those who diligently seek him. Now we've looked already at the faith of Abel. We call that the way of faith. We looked at Enoch. That's the walk of faith. And tonight we looked at Noah. He was the witness of faith. Noah was true to God in an ungodly atmosphere, faithfully preaching righteousness to his peers until the day that God locked him in the ark and the rain began to fall and he will receive the Lord's blessed, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I wonder, is that kind of thing going to be said about your life? If you've never been saved tonight, I want to remind you that there is a limit to God's grace and mercy. We see that in the story of Noah. In the days of Noah, in Genesis 6 and verse 3, it tells us, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. God gave the people of Noah's day a hundred and twenty years to repent, but to no avail. How long will you have? You do not know. We don't know how long we have, do we? I don't. And I want to remind you again, there's no, there is a limit to God's grace. Can you be absolutely certain of God's warning? My spirit shall not always strive with man. You have so much light, 
much, much more light than the people of Noah's day. Don't waste it. Don't wait until it's too late. If you're not saved tonight, come to Christ by faith. And Christian, continue to walk with God. Be an heir of that form of righteousness that Noah was Noah had. Have the same character that Noah had, even in a wicked, violent, terrible day. Walk with God. Be a witness of faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. 